Hi, thanks for joining me today. Uh, this is Greg Lois. Uh, welcome to today's webinar. Our topic today is going to be reopeners and appeals in New Jersey workers' compensation cases. I'm going to talk a lot today about how we close cases because that becomes important on whether or not they can be reopened and uh, whether they can be appealed. And then I'm going to conclude today by talking about just a couple of the most important appellate decisions that have come out so far this year, uh, actually 2018 and just one uh, Supreme Court decision that came out in 2019. So we're gonna do a sort of overview of what are settlements, what kind of orders we can get, and which type can be reopened. Uh, and then we're gonna talk about appeals. And this is really uh, moving through chapter 12 of my book. So if you're following along at home, uh, please, uh, you know, we're gonna go through sort of all of the concepts in this chapter feel free to ask questions. Uh, this is totally 100% live. It makes it so much more fun when I have questions popping up and I can see them pop up here. I will not embarrass you. I will simply say something like, uh, John asked the following question, just so you know that I'm answering your question, but I will not say your last name, okay? All right, let's jump right into it. Uh, New Jersey really has two ways of resolving cases uh, that are settled or resolved amicably. Uh, and those are through a section 20 settlement, that's a lump sum dismissal that closes out everything in the case, or section 22, which is sometimes called an order approving settlement. There's a big difference between these two types of settlements. First, a section 20 settlement is full and final. It is a lump sum dismissal, and there is no potential for reopener. This has to be a settlement. Both parties have to consent to a section 20. An employer or a claimant cannot be forced into accepting a lump sum dismissal settlement of their claim. Only about a third of cases are resolved by way of section 20 at the time of initial settlement. And when I'm saying initial settlement, it's because New Jersey allows for something called a reopener. So many cases get closed on an order approving settlement under section 22. And under an order approving settlement, yeah, the degree and nature of permanent residual disability is settled at the time of settlement. But the petitioner can come back to the court within two years of the last payment, and that could be indemnity or medical, and say, my condition has worsened. It has materially uh, uh, deteriorated to such a degree that I now need more medical treatment and of course judge I need more money. Uh, those types of settlements when they come back the second time are called a reopener. I'm going to get to them in just a second and at that time they can be resolved by way of section 20. In our last presentation last month we talked about Medicare secondary issue payer issues which only arise in section 20 settlements and that's because in a section 20 settlement you're closing the case out once and for all it's really what we want to do with every case in New Jersey we want to resolve it by way of section 20 we can't uh, and this frustrates uh, my clients and everybody's clients in New Jersey every employer wants to do a full and final here's your money go away please never come back uh, but uh, the statute says that the judge may approve, not shall approve, every Section 20 that's brought forward, and there has to be some kind of valid dispute in the case involving jurisdiction, uh, causal relationship, or degree of disability. What this has meant is that over time, uh, there's become a bias in our workers' compensation courts where, generally speaking, judges do not want to do a lump sum dismissal on an admitted accepted claim in which medical was authorized and provided, lost time was compensated, and there is permanent residual disability because they want to give the petitioner the opportunity to enjoy the reopener if they can. 
Now, these aren't the only two ways cases can be resolved in New Jersey. So uh, Section 20 and Section 22 are the most common types of settlements. But remember, a judge can order a case uh, to be resolved, and they can order that after a trial, right? Uh, so they can resolve by way of judicial order. And cases can also resolve by way of a, just a plain dismissal. In other words, uh, you are not the correct employer. You're not the correct employee. There's no coverage. There are many reasons why a party could be dismissed from a workers' compensation case with no payment being exchanged. Another question we get about closing cases or the closure of matters is whether or not New Jersey allows for commutations. And New Jersey has an interesting uh, rule where you cannot accelerate the payments of awards, and, it, and it's frustrating. Uh, in New York, if someone gets an award for 250 weeks of compensation, guess what? Uh, nine, 99 times out of 100, uh, the judge will allow us to put on the order. We're going to pay this as one lump sum. We're not paying out over a period of weeks. New Jersey does not allow that. In fact, New Jersey requires awards to be paid out over time on a weekly or monthly basis. That's frustrating for clients who want to close files. They just say, hey, I want to make my payments and then I want to move on. Uh, so that can be a source of frustration. And New Jersey does allow for commutation. Commutation is where a judge orders uh, the claimant to take the uh, payments accelerated all at once. The carrier gets the benefit or the employer gets the benefit of a 5% discount uh, rate, which is then applied to those payments. Sounds great, except for commutations, especially complete commutations, are rarely approved in this jurisdiction. Uh, I've made motions for commutations, and, I've, and what I really do is I encourage my petitioner's counsel to file a motion for a commutation, and they have to tell the court why they're doing this. Uh, and in the past, we've had reasons like, hey, my home is being foreclosed. Uh, hey, my car is being repossessed. Hey, I've got credit card bills I want to pay. And I've had judges say, well, that's not a good enough reason. There's got to be something more. Uh, scenarios where the petitioner is moving out of the country uh, and has is going to move back. In one example of case I uh, handled, the claimant was moving back to Poland. It was buying a business there, so the judge allowed the commutation. Uh, but generally speaking, they're very rare, and they're very rare to have a commutation uh, actually be granted or ordered for the entire award. Sometimes the judge will say, well, look, the petitioner has $200,000 moving to them. I understand that they have this pressing financial issue or opportunity, because many times it is an opportunity, um, but I'm only going to commute $50,000 of the overall award because I don't want them to lose their reopener rights and the, uh, 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 or to have them be closed down. So let's talk about what a reopener is because it's incredibly important. In this jurisdiction, approximately one in five cases uh, is a reopener. So out of the current pending docket in New Jersey, about 34, 35,000 cases are filed a year. Six or 7,000 of them are reopener claims, which means when you close a matter under an order approving settlement pursuant to section 22, there's a very good chance. In fact, probably more than 50% of those Section 22 settlements ultimately come back on what's called a reopener. Now, the reopener has a real name, which is application to modify, uh, and that means essentially that the petitioner has the opportunity to come back within two years of the date of last authorized medical treatment or payment and say, judge, I deserve more money or compensation because my condition has worsened. Uh, they can say, judge, I need more medical treatment because my condition has worsened and deteriorated in some way. Uh, and they can even come forward and say, look, this was a knee injury, but now it's worsened and com I've got complaints to my hip. And they can bring in a new body part, which was never compensated 
or treated as compensable, uh, or which arthritis treatment maybe was never provided in the underlying case. Interestingly, they can do that even after the two-year statute of limitations has run on the original injuries. So you have situations where someone can obtain an award for an injury, let's say, to a leg or a knee or to a low back, uh, collect benefits, and let's say the benefits are paid out for 300 weeks. So for six years, collect their weekly benefit. And then two years from the date of that last weekly benefit, they can come back into court and say, now my condition has worsened and I'm entitled to more compensation. Now, at that moment, the petitioner has the burden of proof, and they must prove uh, through objective medical evidence that their condition has indeed worsened. What do we do to defend those? Typically, I'm going back to the prior settlement, right, because this is a reopener of a prior settlement, and going through the testimony of the claimant that we took when we resolved the original case. And the reason I'm doing that is because when they're up on the stand, we're asking them to essentially allocute or repeat every complaint they gave to their IME or treating physician so that it's preserved in the record. And you'll have someone who comes in with a broken finger who's saying, you know, I can barely lift my hand and I can't walk and I get dizzy and I'm falling down, just all sorts of crazy complaints and they're relating everything in their life to this. That's great. We love it when they're doing that at a settlement because at the time of reopening, we're going to go back to that transcript and use it to say, judge, what new complaints do they have? They were complaining about all this stuff when we settled it previously. The second thing they have to do is show medical through medically objective evidence that their condition has worsened. That is not just simply, I went back to my IME doctor and I made more complaints. Uh, we're we're going to see a reopener being successful for a petitioner, and that means they're able to actually obtain a higher award or obtain uh, authorization for additional significant treatment would be where they can show a pattern of, hey, look, I judge, I've been collecting my 300 weeks of benefits. In that time, I've been seeing the doctor every other week. My condition's worsened. They've now uh, limited me even further. My, look, my range of motion has gone down. Look, I have wasting uh, or I have, you know, my, my, I've got atrophy in my body, you know, something very significant to really support that award. And we're going to talk in a few minutes about an appellate decision that talks about medical proofs. Uh, but that's how we defend the reopener claim. Most reopener claims, uh, 9 out of 10, 8 out of 10, a huge percentage of them are resolved by way of Section 20 lump sum dismissal at that reopening point. So the typical lifeline of a settled case in New Jersey is uh, the person gets injured at work. It's an admitted compensable loss. Medical treatment is provided. Lost time is compensated. Ultimately, they have permanent residual disability, which we all know. They don't have to show any wage loss in New Jersey, any time even lost from work to obtain an award for permanent residual disability. They collect that award, and after a couple of years or before the award uh, is paid out sometimes, and sometimes after it's paid out, I'm sure they get a little note from their attorney says, hi, uh, happy, happy birthday. It's been two years since your settlement. Would you like to reopen your case if your condition has worsened? I'm sure they uh, couch it in nice, vague law lawyer terms, but I suspect that that's along those lines. Uh, the petitioner then goes back to their friendly IME doctor who says their condition is worsened. Uh, at that time, the case is now ripe for us to resolve by way of a lump sum dismissal pursuant to Section 20. And the reason for that is because the burden of proof is now on the petitioner to show that their condition has materially and objectively worsened in some way. Uh, coming into court and just making more complaints is not going to be enough. And in most of these cases, we are then able to resolve them by way of Section 20, which is a lump sum dismissal. And by the way, it's the point of what we're trying to do. We're trying to get these things closed down.
All right, so let's compare the different resolution types, and then let's talk about whether we can appeal uh, and and uh, the the other part of post-trial work, which is appeals. So a Section 20 settlement, you can't appeal it because you consented to it. Okay, it's a settlement. Two, you can't be reopened, which is great, and there's no need to commute it because you're paying it all at once. A Section 22 settlement, which is sometimes just called an order approving or order approving settlement, uh, absolutely you can't appeal it because you consented to it. Uh, can they reopen it? Yes, they can reopen it within two years. They can request to modify uh, the award within two years of the last date medical was provided, authorized medical was provided, or a payment of indemnity was made. Can it be commuted? Yes. But as I described earlier, uh, the opportunity for that is very limited and the judges will almost never allow for a complete commutation or a 100% commutation. Uh, next, um, what about an order? So here's where the judge has tried the case to conclusion and the judge has issued a determination as to permanent residual disability or really any issue in the case. Uh, yes, that is subject to appeal. You always have the right of appeal in New Jersey. Uh, can that be reopened? Yes, it can. Can that be commuted? Yes, it can. Uh, so those are the different resolution types. And it, really, in New Jersey, you see very few appeals. And that's very different from my New York practice. Uh, standing here today, we are 24 attorneys. 20 of the attorneys practice in New York. Four of my attorneys practice full-time in New Jersey. There is no crossover. The New York attorneys don't go to Jersey courts. The New Jersey attorneys don't go to New York courts. They're very different practices in that in New York, we are doing a lot of appeals, and there is a reason for that. New York has a strategic appeal system where I can use um, an appeal for a tactical purpose. I get a stay on appeal. New Jersey does not allow us to take a stay when we appeal an issue in the case. So there are much fewer... There's no real tactical value to an appeal unless you really believe that the judge made a poor decision and it needs to be reversed. Uh, two, appeals in New Jersey are incredibly expensive. The first level appeal goes to New Jersey's appellate division. That's very unlike New York where the first time you appeal the judge of compensation's decision, it goes to the board panel. There's no filing fees. You can't even submit a brief longer than eight pages long uh, without permission of the court. And so these are relatively simple, relatively short appeals. In New Jersey, that's not how it works. The appellate rules, it's a completely different court. Uh, the appellate division is, in my opinion, not very well versed in workers' compensation law. It's going to take a long time before these cases come up for oral argument or decision. And because the judges are not well versed in workers' compensation law, you'll see decisions all over the place, but very few of them. Uh, a very busy year for the appellate division from a workers' compensation standpoint might be 15 decisions in the entire year. So just not a lot. This year, not a lot of important ones. All right. Let's think about what we can appeal. Remember, we can appeal any final decision of a workers' compensation law judge. We can appeal any decision that's going to move money in the case, and that's important to note for things like motions for med and temp. If you don't win a motion for med and temp, well, you better be looking through that record to see if you found some appealable error in there. Uh, we've been successful. In fact, we were successful this year in appealing a motion for med and temp decision up to the appellate division and winning on it and having them set back and say, judge, you can't make this decision. There wasn't enough information in the record. Try again, okay, which was a huge win because, you know, motions for med and temp, a lot of money is going to move in those cases. And a lot of authorized treatment is going to far exceed the value of the underlying indemnity portion of the case. Um, you can't appeal to things if you consent to them. That's why settlements are not appealable. Even if we find out things later, there has to be real true fraud or duress. And uh, I want to remind everyone that the appellate division's rules changed in 2017. And now every appellate division brief that gets filed has to 
certify exactly where in the transcript, in the record, the trial attorney made the exact objection that's going to be determined by the appellate division. So that could be a challenge if you are trying a case and it's going in and you're not making objections because maybe you don't know what you're doing, trial attorney. Uh, now you've actually waived those objections. You're going to have a real problem raising them in the appellate division later on. All right, this year we saw a couple important appeal decisions that I want to talk about. The first one is completely, absolutely insane. It's so bad, I can't believe it. I'm in the process of writing this up for my clients because I'm just like, ay, ay, ay. Uh, the case is called Kokanowski versus, or Kokanowski versus Bridgewater. Um, Kokanowski is a volunteer firefighter. This lady uh, was a volunteer in her town. A lot of people, uh, if you are not from New Jersey, don't know this, but New Jersey has hundreds and hundreds of towns. I think more than 700 municipalities. Most of these municipalities are tiny. They're teeny. They can't afford to have uh, firefighters. They can't afford to have their own ambulance course. They have volunteers. And the volunteers, or the jolly volleys as we call them, uh, get to you know drive around fire trucks and have some fun and use this expensive equipment and, and provide, by the way, a very necessary and needful service. Most of the firefighting in New Jersey is uh, volunteer on a volunteer basis, and that's because only our towns and cities have paid fire departments. That's uh, what defines actually in New Jersey a town or a city, the paid fire department. So uh, is one of our uh, jolly volleys. She gets injured while on a call, and then she makes a claim for temporary disability benefits, saying essentially, uh, I deserve money because I'm out of work. Well, the employer comes back, or the potential employer, the, the township of Bridgewater, and says, what do you mean you're out of work? You're retired. You don't have a job. You haven't worked in years. You can't claim you're losing any money from unemployment. This has been settled law since 1911. There's absolutely no reason for why she would be entitled to benefits. But guess what? Uh, the workers' compensation law judge says you're not entitled to anything. You had no job that you're missing time from. The appellate division says you're not missing any time from work. What are you talking about? Why would you get uh, paid uh, any kind of weekly benefits? It goes up to the Supreme Court, and this is a very motivated claim because amicus is being filed on behalf of the plaintiff. The Supreme Court says, well, when they wrote the statute in 1911, uh, I think their intent was to actually pay firefighters maximum rate. So in her case, that's $855 per week without having to show that she has any actual wage loss. All right, crazy decision, unanimous crazy decision that just came out, and I understand why it was done. Well, it feels good, right? We feel bad for someone who's volunteering their time and trying to do the good thing for their community, gets hurt, and why should she get zero dollars per week just because she wasn't working? Uh, and someone who uh, worked in a job and made $5 a week would get the maximum rate, $855 a week, because that's what the statute says for volunteer firefighters. Uh, they said, you know what, this isn't fair, and it's kind of a bad outcome for her, so we think the legislature back in 1911 actually meant for all of everybody to get 100% of benefits, and they'll have to show that they were even working. All right, so this, to me, is just them being crazy and doing whatever they want. Uh, it's not a great uh, uh, case. Uh, because it doesn't really illustrate any legal principle other than the courts will just override the legislature whenever they feel like it. All right, the next case, and this is one that we've talked about uh, at length here, and that is New Jersey Transit versus Sandra Sanchez. Uh, this case stands for the proposition that the workers' compensation carrier is not limited by the plaintiff's remedy in the, worker, in the underlying or the other civil case. Uh, in other words, if the worker 
uh, is limited in making a lawsuit and the way they're limited is because they have selected the verbal threshold and they have to demonstrate a permanent disability or significant injury, uh, that would normally stop them from filing a civil claim. And we've always counseled clients before this decision uh, that that also meant that uh, we didn't have a claim because our claims under when we're subrogating are derivative. Uh, nope, New Jersey's appellate division says, nope, uh, the worker's comp carrier is not limited to the plaintiff's remedy. Uh, or any of those uh, sort of limiting factors. That's good news for us. Okay, next, Pindola versus Millennial Express. Uh, this is a case in which Pindola was a driver uh, for a uh, taxi service that gave him uh, a radio that he would communicate with the dispatchers. He had to buy his own car, his own insurance, had his own gas, he wasn't reimbursed for anything, no uniform. And so Millennial Express said, look, we've created this entire situation to show that this gentleman is not our employee but is instead an independent contractor. He can choose or not choose to respond to calls that we send him on the radio dispatch. He has a lot of control over his workday. Now this was a closely watched case because we think it would have some implications for a lot of our Uber drivers and other drivers in perhaps the gig economy. Appellate division comes back and says, well, uh, bad boys, millennial. Uh, first of all, you have prior decisions before this court saying that these guys are absolutely your employees because they rely on you as their sole source of income. And uh, in this case, he can show that he got 100% of his business from you. Therefore, he's really your employee, not an independent contractor. Uh, interestingly, last week, uh, the National Labor Relations Board changed or reverted back to the pre-Obama uh, 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 determination of what is an independent contractor uh, from a federal employment standpoint, and clearly Millennial would have been an independent contractor under the federal standard. However, under the New Jersey standard, and that's really essentially saying he had he solely relied on this one person for his or this one employer for his income, uh, they found him to be an employee. Uh, the last case is one that's unreported, but it's one I liked a lot. It's called Malone versus uh, the Township of Pensauken. This guy was a janitor who claimed or admitted that he had pre-existing knee injuries, or osteoarthritis in his, both of his knees, and then claimed that um, walking as part of his janitorial duties aggravated and worsened his osteoarthritis and therefore made it all compensable. He actually won, and this case was reversed at the appellate division saying there's absolutely no evidence of that. There's absolutely no evidence that he did anything uh, to uh, materially aggravate or, or worsen his condition. The petitioner essentially, from what I gather from reviewing the record, just came into court and said, yeah, work made it worse, and that was accepted by the workers' compensation law judge. The appellate division in that case slapped the judge's hand and said, no, 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 you've got to bring in something more than just his bald assertions or bald claims that working made it worse. There's got to be some way of correlating the causation or the work activity uh, with what he was allegedly doing. So that's a couple of the important decisions, and you know, and this year was not a great year uh, for employers and carriers, as you can see from that first Supreme Court decision that I talked about. I have a pending appeal on the issue of whether the claimant was going and coming. That's been pending before the appellate division. I did oral arguments on that back in November, and they're taking their time uh, coming up with those decisions. But that's going to be an interesting outcome in that case. I'm hoping that the appellate division does the right thing, but I will certainly report to everybody watching today as to the outcome, because if they do decide to change the law in New Jersey, that will have significant impact. All right. I tried to save a little time here at the end for some questions. I hope I have some questions. Let me come on over here and see what we got. If you haven't typed your question in yet, do it quickly. 
Uh, Crystal says thanks, can hear you, and this is useful. No other comments, no other questions, guys? Come on. All right, if you didn't have time to type it in today, that's okay. Feel free about calling me. Uh, we'll chat about whatever specific questions you have. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, the next time we're meeting is Monday, March 25th. That's the fourth Monday in March. And our topic's going to be the Second Injury Fund in New Jersey. It's pretty complicated. It only comes into play in total injury cases. So please join us for that. Hope everyone has a great week.